All right, well, we begin tonight with Joshua 24, 15. Very, very popular verse. Many of you probably have this in your house somewhere. At least I see it in a lot of houses that I go into, where Joshua was speaking um, without compromise to the people that he was leading and saying to them, choose you today who you're going to serve, whether you're going to serve Yahweh the one true God, or you're going to serve the gods of the nations around, you choose who you're going to serve. But as for me, notice these words, as for me and my house. Joshua was a leader of his home. We will serve the Lord. Faith is an individual matter, yes. I cannot save my children. I cannot save my wife. They cannot save me. It's Jesus that saves us individually. Yes, that's true. But faith is also a family matter. And we have a responsibility in the home to glorify God. This looks great on a text in our home, but is it something that we are living out without compromise and without apology? As for me and my house, my family, we will serve the Lord Are they just words on a wall, or is it really the demonstration of our family and our family life that reflects this truth that Joshua had by conviction? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We see something very similar in Acts 16, when uh, the jailer in Philippi who had imprisoned Paul and Silas, he brings them out and says, Sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house will be saved. Well, individually, they would all have to believe in Christ. It's only by faith that any of us are saved. But they were, again, making faith a family matter taking for granted that if the Philippian jailer trusted Christ, he would lead his family to Christ as well. So here we are again, soldiers of Jesus Christ drop behind enemy lines, and we need to make it very, very clear tonight that one of our first priorities as mercenaries for the kingdom of God is to lead our families well. It's one of the highest priorities God has for us, and we're going to see that as we move through. All right, so expectations for a study on the family. Well, the first one is the fact that this is a broken world. Very small writing, sorry about that. Uh, This is a broken world. And what that means is this is a very painful subject for many of you. I understand that. I was just saying at supper time tonight with the chaos going on at the dinner table, I just looked at my wife across the table and said, and I'm just about to go and teach about the family. So here we are, number one broken father right up here, okay? It is, a, it is an issue that reveals our brokenness. It reveals deep burdens and very deep pains, and it may open some very deep wounds tonight. I'm very aware of that. Just like last week when we talked about the sexual revolution, I know for a fact it opened deep wounds. I'm aware of that. So what do we do with that? Well, what we're looking for, again, sorry for the small print, we are looking for conviction, not condemnation. Condemnation just leaves us guilty, just leaves us with self-criticism and self-loathing. Conviction, it, it turns us to repentance and restoration where possible. 
As many as parents surrender their families to Christ, and many surrender their families to Christ later on in life, when their families are already grown up. And you may think it's too late, but God has the ability and the power to redeem what has been broken. It's never too late with the gospel. It's never too late. Some parents tonight may be living uh, just generally gravitating towards self-criticism. When your kids act out, you say, it's all my fault, I'm a bad parent. And we're very good at looking at all of our mistakes and all the things that we've done to mess our children up. And while some of that might be true, it's not always healthy to stay there and to navel gaze for too long and to be self-occupied. Other parents will live in denial of their own failures. They never admit that they've done any wrong and refuse to take any responsibility for either being too passive or too authoritarian. But in either case, we're looking for conviction tonight. We're looking for the Holy Spirit to convict us and to remind us that I am not the hero of my own story. That's what the gospel tells me. I'm not the hero of my own story. God is. He's the one who saves. We're looking for conviction. So the outcome tonight, folks, from anything else that is said, be encouraged to fight for your family. However it exists currently, however broken or unbroken it might be, be encouraged tonight, not discouraged. Use the conviction to turn you to God in prayer. Use it to turn you to God, to, to turn you to God in confession of sin and to surrender your family to Christ and then move in humility out toward them. And we'll get into that more a little bit later. Uh, so what are we going to do tonight? Well, we're going to become aware of some of the cultural motivations driving. I think it's pretty obvious. I, it seems like I'm stating the obvious to say that the culture around us is not exactly family friendly. They used to say it takes a village to raise a child. And what that meant in the 80s and 90s was, well, uh, the parents didn't do a lot of the raising. It was kind of the, the, the moralistic culture around us, the with, with Christian principles and things that, you know, you had school teachers and principals that would train your kids with true discipline and teach right from wrong and so on. And uh, the parents didn't have all the responsibility. Well, today that phrase takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? it? Takes a village to raise a child. Guess what? The village wants to raise your child. They don't want you raising the child anymore. And they want to raise it in a very different way than what uh, the scriptures teach to raise your child. We want to look at those cultural motivations. We want to look at the cultural beliefs behind those motivations that make family destruction and chaos a viable alternative to people today. We want to look at the cultural tools that are being used to promote the abolition of the family. That's a Marxist term, the abolition of the family. We want to look at uh, the determination to prioritize uh, family as the core method, folks. It is the core method of countercultural resistance. Not waving your signs at protests, but the core method of countercultural resistance is prioritizing and leading your family for the glory of God. We want to also look at a recognition of God's value on the family unit, His priority. And then respond to the gospel by surrendering to God's design, appreciating your family responsibility, whatever your role may be. I'm not just talking to parents tonight. We'll talk to kids and grandparents and uh, fulfilling, and, and I don't want to ignore as well the church's role in all of it. But again, time does not permit for 
uh, including everything, but I'm saying it up front that it goes without saying that the church has a major role as well in influencing our children. But tonight we're talking about the family. And uh, again, responding to the gospel by fulfilling that role and glorifying God by being on mission in your family. Okay, well, first thing we're going to look at tonight, we're going to look at what happened to the family. What has happened? Because the definition of family today, it seems like we're talking two different languages. So we're going to go back and we're going to start looking historically at this and how we got to where we're at today and why it is that public school teachers are teaching certain things and seeking almost deliberately, you'd think, to turn your kids away from you, to turn them against you and so on. How did this happen and where has this come from? And it starts with differences in definitions. First of all, the Christian or biblical definition of family. What is it? Well, a family is a group of related, again, not necessarily biologically, obviously children can be adopted and so on, uh, related people who live together within a household in a loving relationship with a mutual understanding of roles. And this includes one father, one mother, as the core of the family. And by the way, any egalitarian view of mother and father, I don't care if it keeps distinctions within the sexes, any kind of idea that they're equal roles between the genders is moving in a very, very dangerous direction. We can prove from Scripture, and I hope we do so tonight, uh, that that is not the model that God laid out and designed. This is known as the nuclear family, not because it is as though a nuclear bomb went off at your dinner table, although that might happen at times, but the nuclear family has the idea of the nucleus of the atom, right? And the atom sticks together, the, the basic of all matter uh, in the atom, and you have you know, the proton and the neutron, and they're all just, they're, they're linked together, and they all have a certain role to play within it. That's kind of where the nuclear family came from. And of course, opposites attract. That's how it works. It is the ideal from which all families can be measured. We would not be able to use the term broken family unless we know what an unbroken family looks like. So the Christian definition of family is held together by a relationship of love. Notice the bond, the glue within this kind of a family is love. Very important. Now let's look at the pagan definition historically of a family. In Roman times, again, the family consisted of a man and his property. That property included his wife and children. So when the apostles were writing into New Testament uh, circumstances, they were writing into this kind of mentality. So the pater familias, father of the family, he was king of his household. What he said, no one argued against. His wife and children were merely business assets. And in fact, at any given time, he could off one of them without any kind of repercussions or accountability. He was king of his household in the Roman uh, Empire. Slaves could be considered part of the family unit again because it's a business. This reflected the economic status of the household. 
Slaves, by the way, back then had very high-skilled jobs, like being doctors and so on, right? They were not just uh, those who cleaned your shoes and so on, but they were very highly skilled. In fact, they could buy their freedom in the Roman Empire, and many slaves ended up being wealthier than the elite in Roman society because they were hardworking people, and the elite thought that it was beneath their dignity to work, something we'll talk about next week when we look at economy. What is the pagan definition of family held together by? Well, it's held together by a relationship of duty, right? Because now it's a business. It's all about assets. It's all about profit and so on. So it's held together by duty. You do your part. You don't ask questions. You don't complain. You don't talk back. You do your part. You do what you're told. And girls in this environment were not welcomed. We're not welcomed. If a girl was born to a man in one of these families, sometimes he would keep the baby, but often he would see the baby as a financial burden and they would send it off to the garbage heap and either it would be picked up by the sex trade or it would be picked up by the Christian church. The Christian church would adopt them as children. The sex trade would treat them as sex slaves. Paul again spoke against that in his ministry. Uh, so you see the difference. Pretty gruesome. But you can see how, again, the biblical family as a structure was a witness to the God of the Bible and the goodness of God. Christians in the early church witnessed to the pagan world through many different aspects of their lives, but one major aspect of their, uh, was their model and definition of the family unit and how it operated. How they lived in their families reflected the goodness of God. Christians have historically operated their families according to their view of God from Scripture. Very important. How you view God tonight plays out in how you operate your family. How you view God plays out and is a reflection within your family and how it functions. Well, that's convicting. Maybe a little bit condemning, but hopefully convicting. Say, man, that, that's pretty important. I guess I should be careful about how I play out my role in my family because other people are watching and it reflects the God that I worship. Yes, it does. We're going to get into more of that in the future, in the near future. But first of all, I just want to notice a, a few historical observations of the biblical family just to make you feel a little better right now. Because in Genesis 2, um, God, he gave his design for the family. A man will leave his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's pretty clear. But if you read through the narrative of Genesis, I'm just taking the first book as a little test tube sample of what the family looks like once it has been broken by sin. It's pretty wild. First thing you have is brother murdering brother in Genesis 4. Cain murders his brother Abel out of self-righteous jealousy. In Genesis 9, after Noah uh, comes out of the ark with the brand new human race, 
Everyone else has been wiped out in judgment. His own son disrespects him, sees him naked, lying in his tent, and goes out and starts laughing about it with his brothers. His brothers go in and cover him up respectfully, but his son Ham shows disrespect to his father. Genesis 12 to 24, we have Abraham and Sarah. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for a son. They're waiting for a son. And during that time, of course, there's a lot of chaos because there's another woman in the house, a bond servant, a bond slave. Her name is Hagar. Abraham fathers a child with Hagar named Ishmael and causes all kinds of tension in the home as a result. Wasn't God's design, but they stepped outside of believing God's promise and that's what happened. Genesis 25 to 28, we have the story of Esau and Jacob. Again, two more brothers. And had it not been for the intervention of providence, God's will and God's timing, Esau would have murdered his brother Jacob. After, and you kind of think, ah, Jacob kind of had it coming to him, right? He, he, he poked the bear. I mean, he did. He poked the bear. But you see the chaos again, brother against brother. And that follows Jacob for the rest of his life. That those shenanigans and the way he was, he was tricking people around, it came back to bite him. Genesis 29 to the end of the book. You're all going to go home and read all 50 chapters of Genesis tonight before you go to bed, right? You promise? It's your homework. We have the story of Jacob and his children. Yes, the children of Israel that God used to set up his chosen nation, his chosen people, through whom he was going to bless the entire world by the Messiah that was going to come into the world through this family. You'd think, boy, this has to be one all-star family. No, it wasn't an all-star family at all. The competition and tension that goes on between Jacob's two wives over childbearing and who's bearing what children. And that caused obvious problems with Joseph and Benjamin against the rest of the brothers. You have Simeon and Levi, sorry, who annihilate an entire city to avenge their sister's rape. And uh, their father remains passive through the uh, the whole experience. You have the brother's hatred of Joseph. You have Judah's relationship in in the middle of all of this. God is working on Judah, and Judah, who was the one who was at the front of, at the lead of killing uh, Joseph or trying to kill Joseph and then selling him as a slave. Judah ends up in an incestuous relationship he's not even aware of with his daughter-in-law Tamar, who acted as a prostitute. Uh, so that she could have children. Say, so that's messed up. Yeah, that's pretty messed up. And then, of course, Jacob's unbearable grief at thinking he had lost Joseph. And then finally, after Joseph reveals himself to his brothers years later and again, remember this, Jacob, his boys, they're not the hero of the story. Do you see this? God is the hero of the story. All the way through, everything that they mess up, God uses for his glory. And at the end of it all, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, hey, I'm Joseph, I'm here to save you. I don't hate you. You did evil against me, what you thought was for evil, and God used it for good and so on. And they're still terrified that Joseph is going to act out in revenge and, and slit their throats in their sleep. And he's terrified. They're terrified of him. Right to the end of the, the, the story, you think this doesn't have a happy ending. And of course, that just moves into Exodus, where again, you got the family under attack in Egypt, and all the babies are being thrown into the Nile River and being eaten by alligators and so on. 
Well, three observations I want to make about this. The first one is the ideal family unit as designed by God has been corrupted by sin. This is a fact, a reality. We must remember this every night. Guys, ladies, when we come home from work or wherever we're coming home from and we meet our kids and the chaos in the house, you generally sometimes at the door, or maybe you come home and they're not even, they're not even interested in your entrance into their world. Um, listen, the ideal family has been corrupted by sin. That's number one. Secondly, God still works by his grace in and through dysfunctional families. That's good news. And that is really the narrative of Genesis. God is setting this up. He's not playing chess, folks. He's not a cosmic chess maker. Hey, I'm wondering what these human beings are going to do so I can make my next move. He's not doing that. He is sovereignly working, mysteriously working his will out in all of history, his purposes. It's pretty clear in the New Testament. He's working out his purposes through, yes, even through our dysfunctional families corrupted by sin. And thirdly, any distortion... Any distortion of the original design for families causes great pain and devastation. And that is clear. When you watch Jacob saying, I just need to die now. He is overwhelmed with grief at the loss of his son. And he can't even bear the thought of losing Rachel's other boy, Benjamin. It causes deep pain. And many of you know that. These are consequences of the fall. They are not proof that there is no God. They're consequences of the fall, not proof there is no God. All right, well, pagan families, listen, how did pagan families run their family? Well, they ran their families based on their understanding of their objects of worship. So I'm going to read you a little bit of what the Romans and the Greeks thought was the origin of the world and the origins of the gods. I'm just going to read a little bit of this uh, for you. It's a little gruesome, so please bear with me, okay? Uh, Here it is. This is from Apollodorus of Athens. It's probably a compilation that was made at a later date, but it was given to him. Sky was the first who ruled over the whole world, and having wedded earth, he begat first the hundred-handed as they are named. Then he goes into describing them, each of them having a hundred hands and fifty heads. After these, earth bore him the Cyclops, to wit, he names them, of whom each had one eye on his forehead. But them sky bound and cast into Tartarus, a gloomy place in Hades, as far distant from earth as earth is distant from the sky. A little more goes on, of course, then... Uh, Again, he begat children by earth, and this time it was the Titans. And as they are named, Ocean and so on. The youngest of all was Cronus, and also daughters, and so on. But earth, listen to this. So earth, the wife of sky, grieved at the destruction of her children who had been cast into Tartarus. She persuaded the Titans to attack their father and gave Cronus a sickle. And they all but Ocean attacked him. They attacked their father. Cronus cut off his father's genitals and threw them into the sea. And from the drops of the flowing blood were born furies to wit and so on. A few more people are born here and a few more gods. And having dethroned their father, they brought up their brethren who had been hurled down to Tartarus and committed uh, the sovereignty to Cronus. And it just goes on and on and on. 
In fact, uh, so then Cronus, he again bound and shut them up in Tartarus and wedded his sister Rhea. And since both earth and sky foretold him that he would be dethroned by his own son, he used to swallow his offspring at birth. Until, of course, Zeus is uh, born. His wife, Rhea, she takes off and gives birth to Zeus, and it's just constant. It's just cyclical over and over again through the whole event. I don't have time to read it all, and you probably don't want me to read it all, but it just keeps going, and it gets worse. Pagan accounts of origins are stories of family dysfunction. In the culture's view, family was a social and economic structure to be tolerated, dominated, and controlled, certainly not to be uh, enjoyed or celebrated. That was the pagan culture that the early church was brought, uh, were, were bringing their families up in was this idea. I mean, all through this story, of this pagan account of the origins of the world and how we all got here and how things became what they were, the stories of the gods, there's betrayal, there's child murder, there's disrespect of parents, there's mutilation and so on, right? It's all there. And that's how Roman society and Greek society ruled their households. It's necessary, but tolerated, and it needs to be controlled. Sometimes I think as Christians, we fall into that uh, trap where all we're doing as parents is controlling behavior all the time. Uh, Not quite to this extreme, obviously, but you can see the roots of it. However, we're going to move forward a number of years to the 19th century. Good old Darwin he uh, told us a story too. You know, we're, we're smarter now. We have science, so we don't need those stories of the gods that the Greeks and the Romans had. No, we have science to tell us a new story about how the world began. Of course, this story, again, lacks the same amount of evidence. Um, but again, he gave us the story that everything, all species came from one direct ancestor and so on. Well, there were others that took this up Darwinian theory and said, well, it's not just species that have evolved from one ancestor. Guess what? Uh, Society itself, culture, all of it, communities and families have all evolved from a common ancestral pattern way, way, way back. You know how much proof they have for this? (laughs) Other than pagan society, but what they're trying to say is that the Christian version or the biblical version of marriage, biblical model of marriage, wasn't there from the very beginning. It's something that was culturally constructed over time, somewhere later on in time. Absolutely false, but that's what they will say. One of the guys that was behind this, his name was Lewis Henry Morgan. He lived between 1818 and 1881, little switching of the digits there. One of the only American social theorists to be cited by such European scholars as Marx and Darwin and Freud and so on. He was a lawyer in upstate New York, and he had a very close relationship to the Iroquois Indians, and they got him interested in how cultures have evolved over time, having studied their culture and society and so on. And he came up with five stages of family development. So I'm going to give them to you. I'm sure you're excited to hear them. Here they are. The first one. The consanguine family, uh, this is human society as it started, was just a promiscuous society. People were just sleeping with whoever was next to them. 
there were no sexual prohibitions or any kind of family structure. So you have, I don't know, you got little kids running around. Whose kid is this? I have no idea whose kid this is. It's a stray. Like, that's how he said it started. Chaos. There's nothing there. Again, in the beginning, there was nothing. There was a big bang, and things just started happening. None of it makes sense. But here we go. Next one. And this is leading somewhere, folks, so bear with me. Just ride the train with me for a little bit. Punaluan family, uh, what they did was they developed, according to him, they developed group marriage. And now uh, brothers and sisters were no longer allowed to mate. Right? So there was no longer incestuous relationships and so on, uh, but group marriage was practiced. And of course, then that led to pairing family, the pairing family, which loosely paired, male and female, lived with other people, no exclusive cohabitation rights, but now people are just pairing off, it's just kind of naturally starting to occur in society, it's, it's just evolving one little bit at a time. And then we have the patriarchal family where the husband dominates, and this gets into Roman, Roman pagan society, and how, again, the husband, he was king of his household. And of course, he could have more than one wife, he could sleep with whoever he wanted to, but those wives better behave themselves and the children too. Uh, the husband was lord of his home. And then eventually, monogamous family, just one husband and one wife who were relatively equal in status. Notice it's the last on the stage. Someone, whoever invented Christianity, came up with this at some point and said, hmm, I think we should try this. This might be a good idea. And here's how we have Christian marriage today. Of course, we know this is to be absolute nonsense, but this is where it came from. There was another man I need to mention at this point, another American. Sorry, I'm going to be hard on the Americans tonight. Uh, Robert Owen was his name. He started a colony in New Harmony, Indiana, uh, and, and it lasted for about two years. It was a model of socialist society, just another evidence that socialism doesn't work. He hated three things. Robert Owen hated three things. He hated private property, he hated marriage, and he hated family. And at one point in 1826, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, he declared his own Declaration of Mental Independence, and Owen proclaimed that men would be free from what he called a trinity of the most monstrous evils that could be combined to inflict mental and physical evil upon the whole race. And by this, he said, I refer to private property, absurd and irrational systems of religion and marriage founded upon individual property. It was absolutely insane. But listen to what he believed. He believed the family must give way to a scientific association of between 500 and 2,000 people living in a colony. And he believed that children, this is key, he believed that children must be transferred from parental authority to institutionalized care. If you've ever read Huxley's Brave New World, you understand he describes this in great detail in his writing. The socialist community in New Harmony, Indiana, I think you can still tour it today down in the southern part of the state, uh, it lasted two years. Owen blamed its failure on the people, on the people, not on the system. He called them poor human material for his experiment. Yeah, so when... When communism doesn't work, or when socialism doesn't work, it's not the system, it's the people. But notice he no longer wanted parents to be responsible to teach kids. Well, guess what? Guess who took 
these two men and a few others, mainly French uh, socialists, who had similar ideas about the family and ran with them were these two guys. One of them we've talked about already, the other one we have not. Marx did not write the Communist Manifesto by himself. He wrote it with his friend, Friedrich Engels. I don't know why Engels got the, the raw end of the deal and didn't get it named after him, but it's called Marxism. It's not called Engelism. I guess that doesn't sound great, does it? Uh, but these two guys co-authored the Communist Manifesto and another book that we're going to talk about in a minute. But in the Communist Manifesto, these two guys were obviously influenced by... Uh, by the two men we just talked about, by Morgan and Owen. In the Communist Manifesto, they refer to the abolition of the family. As communism takes over, this is going to happen. And I want you to notice 10 things that these men called for in their Communist Manifesto. And five of the 10 have to do with the destruction of the family. And you say, why is this important? Well, it's important because of things like this. I printed out from my daughter's high school Edsby today. Um, some, it's all there for the parents to see. Some wonderful things about uh, the family structure and how it has to do with Marxism. It's all there. Listen, your high school kids are being taught these things. Here it is. Abolition of property. Okay. No one has private property anymore. You have no rights to own anything. Heavy progressive income tax. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Abolition of right of inheritance. So we're going to get rid of the idea that you can pass your wealth on to your children. Now, I want you to be noting which ones of these might have anything to do with family matters. Confiscation of property of emigrants and rebels, those who have to leave the country. They're not taking their stuff with them. They're leaving with nothing. Next, centralization of credit into the hands of the state. So the only bank that exists is the government. Centralize, centralization of means of communication and transport. Again, you hear about this high-speed rail they keep talking about. Why do they want all that? They don't want you to be in control of where you can go on your own. They want to control it for you. Instruments of production owned by the state. Okay, so factories, businesses. Again, we'll look at that next week, not so much this week. And by the way, if any of you are thinking the economy is a boring subject, I thought that too until I, I took a course on it and I was absolutely fascinated by it. Please come back next week, little plug. Equal obligation to all to work. Well, that one is quite frankly a joke. It doesn't work. <laughs> little story, I'll tell you the story next week about... Uh, my daughter's Marxist teacher giving them a, a test and then trying to prove how wonderful socialism was by the bonus marks she awarded to the kids who studied hard and the kids that didn't study hard. It kind of backfired. Uh, the next one, abolition of distinction between town and country. So what that meant was they were going to disperse, they wanted to disperse people from the cities into the countries, into the farmlands, and uh, basically, this happened in Cambodia, if you ever get a chance. I haven't watched it yet, but I do want to watch it. I don't want to watch it, but I feel I need to. The Killing Fields, uh, some of you have probably watched it. And the, the horrific events that happened in Cambodia during Pol Pot and the, I think it was a four-year communist or socialist reign of Pol Pot. But what they did was they dispersed families throughout 
the countryside. Just get out and put them into working farms. And again, they, they separated children from parents and so on. Uh, that was something that Marx and Engels had called for, dispersing people uh, from towns and so on. Uh, free education of all children in public schools. Sound familiar? Maybe a little bit? Of these five, I think we can see, first of all, abolition of property. Well, that affects family. Heavy progressive income tax. Again, no longer is the family the provider of the, uh, for the kids. No longer the parents providing for the family, but the state will provide for you. They will tell you what you need and when you need it. Abolition of right of inheritance. Your children get nothing when you die. Right? And then abolition of distinction between town and country right at the very bottom and free education of all children in public schools. They wanted the state to be teaching our children, not the parents. Well, a few observations to make from this. Uh, first of all, what could possibly go wrong with implementing this system? What could possibly go wrong? All of this demands dictatorship. And this whole idea of a classless society, folks, is complete fraud because someone is in control. Someone tells, where, tells you where your kids are going. That's not a classless society. Someone has the power. Secondly, uh, pardon me, I already noted the five of the ten points directly uh, affecting the family structure. Uh, the, the third observation I want to make was that children would no longer look to parents for provision and for education. All of that would come from the state because the state knows better than you do. They love your kids more than you do, after all. And Marx and Engels claimed the hallowed correlation of parent and child is nothing more than a bourgeois claptrap. And then they said this, do you charge us with wanting to stop, notice this word, to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? To this crime we plead guilty. Yes, you Christian parents are exploiting your children with such things as morality and right and wrong in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, they wrote another book. Well, they didn't really write another book. I should be historically somewhat accurate. By the way, I, I had a, a, a misquote last week on my abortion stats. The 42.6 million was a worldwide stat, not the American stat. Not that it matters, it's still tragic. But I noted it after and thought I better correct that. Anyways, I do want to be accurate with this. Uh, Marx and Engels did not technically write The Origin of Family, Private Property, and the State because Marx was already dead at this point. But Engels elaborated on this. He, he wrote this book, and in the intro, he stated that Marx had a lot to do with the writing of this book. These were all his thoughts. It wasn't just Engels. It was the two of them together. Here are a few things that they had to say in this book about what they saw as the family. Their thoughts have been developing at this point. First of all, uh, oh, here we go. Private housework replaced with social labor. Oh, yeah, that came up today. Uh, this, is, this is from Massey High School. I thought I'd read this. Okay, so this continues today. This is horrible, folks. Uh, this breadwinner labor compensation and masculine idea that the, that the man is the breadwinner of the home. And 
uh, stay-at-home partner or parent, guess what they are? They're just unpaid labor, okay? That's unjust. So the unpaid domestic labor is what supports the other spouse's career pursuits, right? So the breadwinner in the home, you're just pursuing your career. It's all about you. And the other person in the home who's, who's uh, looking after children or doing any kind of domestic labor is just the unpaid slave. Um, and so this is still going on today. And of course, this is what Engels and Marx were actually talking about when they decided we're going to solve that by sending the government into your home to clean your bathrooms. And this will become social labor rather than private housework. Secondly, the institution of marriage uh, restricted true love relationships. They said marriage is evil, and this is why. It's restricting true love. People just love each other, follow your heart. True love is love, right? I mean, it's still uh, being, it's obviously being echoed today. You can see where this is coming from. The communal care of children would free people from sexual inhibitions, right? So now you don't have to worry about pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies, and so on. But they were saying that if the government takes care of children, puts them all into orphanages and schools and so on, and by the way, that happened in Roman times and uh, when children were sent off to these boarding schools, they're almost expected to be abused and molested. It was just part of pagan society back then. And of course, what do you think would happen if this was the case today? But this is what they were talking about. Communal care of children would be free from inhibition. So therefore, we can just be promiscuous. We can have sex with whoever we want and not worry about unwanted pregnancies because the government will take care of the children, which is actually happening with government-sponsored abortions, isn't it? Did not, uh, so they did not, this needs to be clarified, they did not endorse a sexual free-for-all. They were not talking about just promiscuity. What they were talking about was not a bond of matrimony. They didn't want any kind of covenant or commitment attached to it uh, to hinder dissolving failed or expired love relationship, but the idea of a free marriage or a romantic dyad, the idea of two people falling in love and they have a free marriage where they, you know, cohabitation. You live together as long as you feel like it, but as soon as it kind of grows old, grows stale, you're no longer in love, it's just kind of the common, you got to take the garbage out once a week, you got to clean the bathrooms, you got to do the laundry, and it's drudgery now. Well, move on. This is what they were calling for, and this was their idea of family. And don't worry about the kids. The kids are no longer liabilities. The government will decide for you because the government knows best. By the way, just to make a, a note very quickly, of their lifestyles. Engels, for himself, he did live this out to some degree. He lived in a free marriage of this kind, and I'm using the word marriage very loosely. In fact, I shouldn't use it at all. Uh, he settled down with a lady after living a very promiscuous life, lifestyle throughout the 1840s when they had written the Communist Manifesto. But he settled down with Mary Burns, never married her, uh, but referred to her as his wife and so on. He had a separate bachelor pad in Manchester. Do you know why? This is interesting. This is where the hypocrisy comes in. And just like all these people flying off to a climate change conference right now, it's laughable. Um, but the hypocrisy was there. He couldn't avoid it either. He had a separate bachelor pad in Manchester, and it's, it's assumed that the reason he had one where she didn't go uh, was because she was an Irish working-class woman and he liked to go to Manchester, the city of Manchester, to hang out in the bourgeois circles 
that would not have accepted her as an Irish working class woman. So the very people that he hung out with, the bourgeoisie, were the ones that he was claiming were so evil and unjust. Does that make sense? And then you have Marx. Listen, surprise, surprise. Marx was a husband and a father, and he seemed to be somewhat steady at both of those. So for all of his saying things like, you know, I wish, I, I wish marriage is drudgery and marriage is a burden and so on, well, some of it had to do with the fact that he just lived off of his parents' inheritance and drove his mom nuts by asking her for money all the time. He was always bankrupt, always seemed to be in financial ruin because, well, he didn't work for a living. He kind of lived out what he taught there. But he was married and he had children and he cared about who his children dated and who they married. He blocked his daughter Eleanor's relationship to one guy. He also blocked his daughter Laura's relationship So the very things they were preaching for, they weren't living. That's the point. They had a lot of ideas. They didn't live them out. But the problem is, ideas have consequences.